Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, important news uh, taking place today down in Brunswick, Georgia. Um, as I think most people know by now, uh, Travis and Greg McMichael and Roddy Bryan, all three who have been found guilty of the murder of Ahmad Arbery, will be sentenced today. And um, while they all face mandatory uh, sentences, <clears throat> excuse me, of three, 30 years, um, uh, today, Judge Timothy Wamsley will uh, hear arguments as to whether they should be given an opportunity for parole uh, beyond those 30 years served. Um, of course, uh, Greg McMichael is already in his 60s, I think, and, and probably will spend the rest of his life in jail. His son, Travis, much, much younger. And Roddy Bryan is in his 50s. He has the potential for parole. But I think it's a story the entire state and the country are watching as we reach the end of the first a trial of all three men. There's a federal trial coming up, a hate crimes trial that we'll talk a bit about uh, today as well. The larger question, of course, though, is what's happening with racial justice and social justice and the movement to try to uh, create more equal uh, justice, more equal opportunities for African Americans and other minorities in this country since the terrible, terrible tragic events last year, the deaths of people like Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, uh, and others. And we're going to talk about all that and more with our panel today. It's Friday, which means Patricia Murphy, the political reporter and political columnist at the AJC. You read Patricia's column every Wednesday and Sunday in the AJC, and she oversees uh, the jolt uh, it, at AJC.com, which is a great way to catch up on what's happening in politics in one big gulp. Hi, Patricia. How are you? <laughs> Hello. Well, every morning, I hope it's going to be a bite-sized snack, but that it ends up being a, a big gulp <laughs> of jolt by the end of the morning. <laughs> well, you know, I have to tell you, um, in some ways, doing the jolt is a lot like what doing this show is, which is there, there are certain times when I think, gee, are we going to be able to really fill an hour talking about politics? And I'm sure sometimes you wonder, do I have enough items uh, to give away to the jolt? These days, no problems, right, Patricia? <laughs> Bill, I never worry about having enough Georgia politics uh, craziness to write about every morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Margaret Coker is back with us. She's the editor-in-chief of The Current, the nonprofit uh, news uh, uh, website, uh, which is based out of Savannah. And Margaret, of course, you paid close attention, uh, given that uh, Brunswick's just down the road from you, uh, to the trial uh, plus, you've spent a lot of time looking at uh, Glynn County and issues in Glynn County, so I'm very happy you're with us today as well. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Gr gl glad to be back. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, we're also joined, uh, if, for the first time in far too long, um, by uh, Tiffany Williams Roberts, who is the public policy director at the Southern Center for Human Rights. I think, I think uh, no one would... Uh, deny the fact that it is one of the most important civil and human rights organizations in the Southeast, if not the country. A lot of their work deals with dealing with incarcerated uh, African Americans and others. Tiffany, thank you for being back with us. Thank you for having me, Bill. I'm happy to be here. Um, and finally, we're really uh, thrilled that Bobby Henderson is joining us today. Bobby Henderson is the co-founder of an organization we'll talk more about called A Better Glenn, which came together at a time when um, African-American residents in Brunswick, in Glynn County, were saying we have to do something about longstanding problems of racial equality in the county, in the city of Brunswick. Bobby Henderson, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, all. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, so let's start by talking, Patricia, uh, first about what we um, expect to see happening in uh, court today. By the time the show repeats at 2 o'clock, we may know exactly what the outcome of the sentencing is. But this morning at 9, we're still uncertain. Um, so the judge will have the option of granting parole 
opportunities at some point to all three men, right? Um, yes, that's right. Right now, all three of these men are convicted of uh, not just one count of murder, but multiple counts of murder. Um, Travis McMichael uh, was found guilty on all nine uh, charges that he was brought up on, including murder, malice murder, aggravated assault, false imprisonment. Um, his father was uh, found guilty on eight of those. And then Roddy Bryant was found uh, guilty of three counts of felony murder. And so these are obviously very, very serious charges. But there is the reality that even with multiple murder uh, convictions, um, they could have a, a possibility for parole. And I think the anxiety for um, especially for um, activists and social justice uh, uh, activists is that uh, there's it's one thing to be convicted of a crime and the sentencing of that crime is equally important. Bobby, what's the mood in Brunswick today? I mean, obviously, you've gone through a very trying period of time dealing with the murder itself and then uh, the trial as it was unfolding. What's the mood today as sentencing approaches? I think most people are just anticipating the end of it all. Uh, It's been a long, hard uh, course that we've all been on, um, and Whatever happens in court today happens. Um, we got the most important thing, which was the conviction. Uh, we know what the Georgia statutes are, uh, what the possibilities of sentencing are. Uh, this is uh, pretty well the, the most easy portion of, of this journey that we've been on. Yeah. Um, Margaret, of course, um, Bobby points out it's the end of the, the, the state uh, trial, but the federal trial awaits the hate crimes uh, federal case will unfold pretty soon down there. Yeah, I, I'd like to make one comment about about sentencing um, today, if I may. Um, the judge, of course, Judge uh, Timothy Walmsley, is is from uh, Savannah and, and presides in the Savannah Judicial Circuit. And, you know, I, I sat through almost every single week of, of trial, both pre-trial hearings, um, the jury selection. And I'll say that you know, the community mood was so prevalent in in that jury selection process where dozens and dozens and dozens of people were struck for cause because they had seen the video that we've all seen now and said straight out to the judge in court, this is a hate crime, this is murder. And so well-meaning people across Glen County, white and black, saw that for what it was and made that determination in their own mind. And I think that the Judge Walmsley has also you know, left some breadcrumbs throughout the trial proceedings about what he feels has been going on and what he feels about about race and and Georgia. And I know that because of his background coming through an incredibly well-established white shoe law firm in Savannah that was founded by uh, one of of the great uh, desegregationists in coastal Georgia, I think that he's going to finally have a chance to come through and say what he actually feels about this crime. And I, I'm, I feel like because of the community mood showing this for what it was, which was a racial motivated murder that um, I'm going to be very surprised if the sentencing doesn't, um, the sentencing includes parole. I think, I think that's off the table. However, with the, with the hate crimes trial starting next month on a federal level, you know, we are going to see a whole lot of evidence that was excluded from the state trial, evidence that we've all heard about as hearsay at this point. Um, that shows uh, allegedly shows an entire pattern of of racial hate um, and racial bias. Um, t- Tiffany, it, w- it's interesting that Margaret points out we're going to hear new evidence when the federal trial starts because in in the in the, in the state trial, uh, the prosecutor Linda Dunikowski made a very very deliberate decision not to invoke race at any point. During the trial, she wanted the facts of what the, uh, the the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan did, just the very actions that were captured on the video uh, that that was so important to the case, um, to speak for themselves without regard to the fact that they were white and uh, and obviously Arbery was African American. But we're going to see a change, and it's going to be interesting, Tiffany, to see whether the introduction of, um, of a racial motive here, how that plays out with, uh, with the community down there. Sure. Uh, with the federal charges, um, so in my past life, I was a criminal defense attorney for many years, and yeah. uh, 
it is not uncommon for attorneys on both sides of the case to avoid the issue of race, especially in the South, um, not only because of fears that may, there may be some backlash from folks who don't want to talk about race, but also because there can be arguments from the court that the um, that racial animus not being an element of the of the of the um, crime um, is irrelevant. And so that's not the case with the federal charges, because, of course, um, being driven by racial bias or animus is uh, one of the elements of um, the federal statute under which they are charged. And so um, that evidence, it will be much more difficult to keep that evidence out um, and on the federal level. Bobby, are you at all concerned that the mood could shift, that there could be a, 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 a more uh, powerful kind of racial divide in the community when the federal trial begins? So one of the things that we've maintained here is that we are a working class community. Uh, we have a, uh, a large demographic of working poor, uh, and, and people really don't have the time uh, as the rest of the nation does to even pay attention to everything that's going on to invest a lot of emotion because they got bills to pay, right? People are at work. Uh, there was concern uh, during the trial why the community wasn't coming out to the courthouse every day. Uh, and one of the things uh, and one of the reasons why Better Again exists is because we do have uh, such a large swath of working poor here uh, that don't have the luxury of, of uh standing on a courthouse lawn every day. So when the details start to come out about the, uh, the racial animus, it's not going to be news to anyone here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also not going to change the fact that they have to get up and go to work the next morning. Uh, it, it will uh, kind of be status quo as it, as it has been. Uh, and, and again, that's why ABG exists, is to change those dynamics uh, for people on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to jump in, and if it's okay, actually ask Margaret a question, <laughs> because, Margaret, because you've been down there covering um, just every bit of uh, the current trial, um, what are you looking for in the in the federal hate crimes piece of it? What do you think will be um, uh, different, and, and what stakes do you think are going to be um, – how, how high do you think the stakes are going to be down there? Well, it's interesting, right, because even though um, there has been a lot of contention in the in the state's trial about the composition of the jury, you know, the jury was actually made up of Glen County residents, no matter what the color of their skin was. And the federal crimes, um, sorry, the federal hate crimes trial is going to include a jury pool from across the Southern District. So counties that, that aren't Glen County, people who, who live in a, maybe in a lot of different places, and so it's going to be. I think. I think the um, the perceptions and the and the social consciousness of of this federal crimes jury is, might be completely different. Um, the prosecutors also are, are from out of state, and these are prosecutors who are specialized in hate crimes and civil rights case law. Um, they might not have the same you know touchstones and understanding of of the community that. Um, prosecutor Donikowski and her team had, even though they came from the you know the big city of Atlanta, they at least are Georgians. And so these sort of small things might might end up mattering. And then we get to the the quality of the evidence. You know, right now all of us who have been watching the trial um, and and um, and the entire Arbery um, murder case from the beginning know that there is hearsay evidence out there, that the GBI is part of their investigation that finally led to the arrests of the McMichaels and the Bryans. You know, they have, there's, there's been these very tantalizing and chilling allusions to a pattern of racial bias by, by the, um, the convicted murderers now. But is that evidence that will stand up to the, um, you know, to, to the standards of, of evidence in a federal court? I don't know. So there's, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns. And as Bobby can attest, you know, most of the emotion coming through in, in terms of, of these trials is coming from a national level. And there's a lot of different groups that have tried to make hay while the sun shines um, on the misery of, of Glen County and the people of Brunswick. And so all of these things are, are going to be dynamics um, in play, let alone Georgia being under the spotlight in an election year about racial justice as an issue that will be talked about for the next 10 months to come. Um, so um, Tiffany and Bobby, um, three of us on the panel today, of course, are journalists who are observers 
in uh, in the news of the day uh, and and certainly do analysis of uh, of issues like social and racial justice. Uh, but the two of you are actively involved. You're on the front lines. So so I'd like to ask each of you to talk a little bit about where we stand today. Are we making progress? I mean, a- after the terrible last spring of 2020, um, when um, we saw uh, uh, the deaths of African Americans at the hands of police, when you went through, when you went went through in what you went through down there in Brunswick and other aspects of Glynn County's racial injustice, Bobby, talk a little bit, if you will, about the founding of a better Glynn and why it's been important and how it's helping. Uh, try to change the dynamic for the people in your county? Well, I'll start nationally that uh, the referendum on uh, all the work that was done to get people out to vote in uh, November of 2020 was that we had an insurrection on the Capitol, right? And uh, although a group of people will say that they uh, don't believe that the uh, the, the insurrection was an insurrection, uh, they, they still have moved in ways that agree with the motives that the election was false, the, the results were false. Uh, so in our state, we've had legislation that has been passed uh, that would hinder uh, the ability to get people out to vote. It hinders the, the work uh, that we're able to do. We're not able to serve people uh, that are standing in election lines for uh, seven hours just to exercise their right to vote. Uh, so our, our Get Out to Vote campaigns have uh, greatly shifted uh, in, in the work that we do. Um, a Better Glenn exists. Uh, one of the main reasons is for civic engagement, to get people involved uh, in making their own choices about who they want to represent them politically um, and also holding those people accountable once they take office. So uh, with regard to uh, how things look locally, they look exactly as they do nationally. We are a a demographic that is is, uh, strongly Republican uh, here in this community. We we saw that uh, in in the 2020 election cycle. Um, We uh, saw that with the absence of of even Democrats even being on uh, the ballot. Uh, while we are a nonprofit, we believe that uh, not having a choice on the ballot is, is not uh, democracy. So we work hard to, to get people uh, trained. We're, uh, we have a new initiative that we're beginning this year with leadership development, uh, with people that want to get politically involved uh, so that we can get people on the ballot to give the people choice, right? So uh, we're, we're fighting the, the same narrative that uh, we're fighting uh, at the General Assembly in the state and that we're, we're fighting to get legislation passed uh, uh, at the Capitol, uh, that people have the right to, to the access to the ballot. Uh, disproportionately, it is hindered for people of color, uh, and it, it's a, a huge fight on a daily basis uh, to keep people encouraged uh, and to keep people uh, viable uh, in access to the ballot. Um, Tiffany, um, when I look at the Better Glenn website, which, by the way, we'll post a link to on our social media, it's uh, a better Glenn, one word, dot org. Um, Tiffany, uh, you, the first thing you see is a statement that says, cultivating a community where everybody thrives. And then uh, it's, they go on to say, in June 2020, a group of friends got together to discuss the issues that arisen, had arisen in their hometown of Brunswick. That conversation sparked several what-if questions that allowed them to dream about a better future for the city. What if Glynn County were more fair and equitable for all of its residents? What if voters were better informed and mobilized to vote for equity-based solutions? What if we could develop future leaders who care deeply for real, tangible solutions? What if there were an organization that cared about making Glynn County a better place? So all that relates specifically to Glynn, but those are the same questions that activists who are fighting for social justice are asking about the country at large right now, Tiffany. Sure, and and I want, want to note that um, our work at Southern Center led us to co-found a coalition called Just Georgia, um, which was founded on Mother's Day of 2020 after the killing of Ahmaud Arbery because 
um, we knew that there would be uh, these national actors that Margaret mentioned that would swoop into Glen County and exploit um, the suffering of the people there. And we also knew that Georgians had the resources um, to do what we needed to do um, to, to deconstruct these systems that made the killing of Ahmaud Arbery possible, those systems that perpetuate state-sanctioned violence. And so um, on a national level, we're seeing a rise in what some people refer to as hate. But also, we're talking about, when we're talking about state-sanctioned violence, that means um, are we emboldening vigilantes? Um, are we um, emboldening police officers? who would prefer not to give the benefit of the doubt or a right to a fair trial to people because they are black. Um, in 2020, there were 96 police shootings, according to the GBI in Georgia. Uh, 2021, there were 100, right? So we're not seeing a downward departure um, in state violence. Uh, but I think what we are seeing, um, like we're seeing on the national level, on the state and local levels, we are seeing communities being engaged by infrastructure built by organizations like A Better Glen. Um, and, and the thing that is critical is that we honor the expertise and the experiences of the people who are most impacted and that we don't, don't lead ourselves to believe that convictions, indictments, um, actions in singular circumstances will provide for systemic change. We can hold them up as examples for why certain ills shouldn't exist, like citizens' arrest. But what does it mean when we are passing anti-protester bills, proposing anti-protester legislation that provides immunity to someone who mows down a protester on the road? What does it say when we say we have a gun violence problem in Georgia, and at the same time, we want everyone to be able to carry a gun wherever they want when we know, um, Bobby and I know, that, that anyone who can carry a gun in public, it doesn't look like us, right? And so... Uh, there is the implicit, impl there are the implicit implications of legislation um, that we need to be mindful of, and we should not romanticize the activist or the organizer experience because we are in a persistent struggle against the backlash of progress. And I think that that's what we are imagining that we can change through electoral processes, um, but through, also through policy change and movement building infrastructure. Um, Patricia, I, I, I think that uh, Tiffany makes a really excellent point here. There are these mixed messages that have come out of the legislature uh, since the Ahmad Arbery murder. Um, so on one hand, um, finally, as a result of that murder, um, this, the legislature passed a hate crimes bill, which had been languishing for literally decades in the legislature. Uh, with the help, by the way, of the Southern Center for Human Rights, Patricia, they uh, uh, modified and, and drastically altered the citizen's arrest law in Georgia. So there's that on the positive side of the ledger. But then, of course, uh, Tiffany mentions all the other ways in terms of voting uh, laws, in terms of laws about uh, protesters and people who act against protesters that suggest a different picture, Patricia. Yeah, there's also um, in the last uh, two years been a huge debate on policing, uh, police funds. Um, there was a bill that was passed uh, in the last state legislature to prohibit any local uh, any local government from reducing its police funds by more than five percent, um, and that comes after police-involved shootings, as Tiffany um, as Tiffany talked about um, in such great detail. And it really does feel covering the state legislature last session and this session, you, you can just feel the tension between the politics uh, that overlay the state, the Republican leadership in charge of the General Assembly, and then the changing dynamics beneath that's happening beneath the state government. Um, that in the last 10 years, Georgia has grown by a million voters, um, that the black population has grown by 13% in the last 10 years, and the white population has shrunk by 1% in the last 10 years. That has huge implications politically here in the state, um, and it means that Democrats are the ascendant party, and you can feel that down, um, uh, not necessarily at the state capitol, but you certainly have seen it in these federal elections. And so then when you see something like uh, redistricting happen, that has um, certainly curtailed 
uh, the speed of that growth of the Democratic strength, um, certainly at the state legislature. Um, Democrats are going to lose a seat likely in the federal delegation, the House delegation. Um, it's, it's very obvious that Georgia is changing very quickly, um, but that the there is an, an, an effort uh, by Republicans in the state to hold on to power as long as they can with while not truly addressing some of these larger issues, I have to say. Margaret? Yeah, you know, in our all of our reporting at the current last year about um, about implicit bias in policing, uh, of course, we focused on Glenn County, but what you have to do is pull out and see what um, exists under Georgia state law and what is absent under Georgia state law. You know, there is no law on the books that defines racial profiling. So how can you talk about an increase of social justice or even an increased consciousness about social justice when you can't even define what what part of that looks like um, um, in, in our state law? Under policing, you know, we have 159 counties in Georgia. Every single county has their own law enforcement um, agency. There is no unifying law in Georgia that demands that that police actually um, collect data that would show racial profiling or implicit bias within their force. And so it is great that we have a new hate crimes law in Georgia. It's great now that under that, that state law, there is a mandate for local police departments to actually report into the FBI and the GBI about what hate crime hate crimes have taken place in those counties. But still, when it comes to the day-to-day struggle, for people of color or marginalized communities to actually get a fair shake and to feel like they're getting justice and being defended by their law um, enforcement agencies, there's still a long way to go legally in the state of Georgia. All right. I, I, I thank you for those uh, comments from all of you. I want to continue this conversation, but I really want to get to our first break of the show. So let's do that, and we'll be back with more in just a moment on Political Rewind. <laughs> Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. We're joined today by Bobby Henderson, who's a co-founder of A Better Glenn, Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, the public policy director at the Southern Center for Human Rights, and our Friday regular Patricia Murphy, who uh, writes the Political Insider column, writes the jolt, or contributes to the jolt for uh, AJC.com, and you read her on Wednesdays and Sundays when she writes her column for the newspaper. Um. Bobby, I, I want to talk a little bit about your personal story for a few minutes because I think it plays into this larger narrative of the struggles that minority uh, individuals in this country uh, have in, in being treated with fairness and, and equity. And, and I'm pulling some of this from you, Margaret Coker. You wrote a, just a marvelous profile of uh, Bobby Henderson for The Current. It was a partnership with The Washington Post. So if you don't mind, Margaret, in talking to Bobby, I'm going to expropriate, I'm going to take some of your uh, stories and bring them forward. Um, Bobby, Margaret wrote about what happened when you were in first grade and your mother was arrested after a mentally ill neighbor attacked her and she fought to defend herself. Just tell us a little bit about that story and how at that early age, it, what it told you about the black experience in, in a state like Georgia. So uh, again, uh, my mom was attacked by uh, an uh, ex-girlfriend who uh, had severe uh, mental illness of uh, my dad who raised me. Um, and uh, in defending herself, my mom stabbed the woman. She was uh, on top of her, uh, hitting her with a, a heavy ashtray. Uh, and the woman later died in the hospital. Um, and the uh, the rebuttal from the justice system to my aunt and my grandmother uh, was um, somebody's dead. It's 1984. Somebody's got to go to jail. Um, and that's what happened. My mother went to prison uh, just because she was a black woman, and uh, that was the status quo. So that was my introduction uh, to uh, the justice system. Um, when I was 16, I had uh, the police pull a gun on me for the first time, uh, 10 days out of the military. Uh, I had the 
the police pull a gun on me for the second time. And in 2019, while I was at work, I had uh, U.S. Marshals uh, pull a gun on me uh, uh, while I was uh, doing my job here at Georgia Pacific. Um, when I was asked uh, by uh, Human Resources if I wanted to file a complaint, my response to them was, this is not the first time that I've had this happen to me. It's kind of normal. I just want to go back to work. And mm -hmm. and that's pretty much the numbness that gets uh, baked into our consciousness that this is just our our plight here in America, that uh, state violence is, uh, is just our portion here. But again, it's the reason why ABG exists to, to transform those systems and, and also transform that mentality uh, for our community to say that, no, we don't have to uh, subject ourselves to, to this violence uh, on a continual basis, um, that we, we have rights and uh, we're going to execute them in order to, to uh, get our full share of citizenship here in this country. Tiffany, we all hear stories like what Bobby's describing uh, fairly regularly, but you actually work with them on a daily basis at the Southern Center. Yes, and, and unfortunately, what we know um, is that um, this kind of violence not only comes from police, but also comes from people who feel deputized by police uh, to protect social order, white power, and white supremacy. And so um, that looks like the killing of Ahmaud Arbery because we have to remember that he was not killed by police. Um, he was killed by people who deemed themselves to be law enforcement, most likely by virtue of their experiences and their race. Um, just up the road from, um, from Brunswick in Statesboro, Georgia, Mark Wilson is a young man who was chased off the road by a young, a, a truckload of white teenagers yelling racial slurs. He was with his white girlfriend. He fired a shot, striking one of the, the, the young people in the other vehicle. She died. He's been in pretrial detention for 500 days, um, despite having no criminal history, um, despite the sheriff of his hometown coming to Bullock County to say not only that they knew that Mark was a good person, but they would drive Mark to court every time he had court to ensure that he wasn't a flight risk, right? And so this kind of violence um, is not only detrimental to our clients who, who um, are the families of people who are killed, the people who survive and, and the people who survive with them experience tremendous trauma that really can only be addressed by getting at the systemic issues and telling the truth about the system that would let someone like Mark Wilson languish in pretrial detention for 500 days. Margaret and Patricia weigh in. Margaret? Yeah, um, those are very eloquent and chilling anecdotes about the criminal justice system. You know, I, I, um, we're, we're taking a hard focus um, this year at The Current about about how society in Georgia is is now sort of regularizing intolerance, which is a huge deal, right? There's violent extremism and violent racism, and then there's polite, normalized intolerance. And the Anti-Defamation League, of course, keeps great statistics about um, intolerance across the U.S., but especially in the state of Georgia. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in the 2020 election cycle that we had David Perdue's campaign uh, send out flyers that were incredibly anti-Semitic against his opponent, John Ossoff. Here locally in Chatham County, we in our DA's race, there was an enormous amount of anti-Semitism and um, also, uh, you know, sort of, I, I would call it hate, hate speech as well um, by our former DA against her opponent who actually won the race in large part, I think, because Savannah and Chatham County decided we're not going to truck in that sort of um, anti-Semitism and intolerance. We don't want that to be part of who we are and um, enormous amount of votes shifted um, in, in that race. But normalizing intolerance in all levels, understanding that, um, that Hate looks different to different communities, whether you are black and looking down the barrel of a gun from a police officer, whether you are LGBTQ and getting beat up because you've tried to pick someone up at a bar or because people won't serve you a wedding cake. You know, there's a lot of different ways in which um, hate becomes normalized, and that frightens me as an American, as, as a Georgian. 
I think uh, what Margaret brought up about the new DA in Chatham County is so interesting because um, I think that voters are starting to see that a number of these positions, people in power um, at some of at some of the most important decision making levels, um, are not necessarily U.S. senators and um, and state senators and state representatives. It can be the county DA, it can be the county sheriff, who are all elected officials. And so we saw um, we've seen the last two elections cycles, a significant turnover in the district attorneys of some of uh, Georgia's largest counties um, to, to be more progressive faces. And I'll point you to um, Gwinnett County and Cobb County have had a turnover in their, D, in their DA's offices. Um, and that comes down also to um, which crimes are prosecuted, how they're prosecuted, um, which crimes get the attention, which ones are, are uh, dismissed and seen as not, not, uh, don't, not having merit. And so I think that uh, voters are starting to understand they, they can have a larger role to play um, there are uh, positions of enormous influence that are not at the top of the ballot necessarily. Um, Patricia, while the ball's in your court, uh, let me uh, uh, try to talk about a couple places where we've seen what appears to be some kind of progress, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Warner Robins, which is 50 percent white, Patricia, elected its first African-American and first female uh, mayor last year, um, LaRonda uh, Patrick, um, and, uh, and and there were people in that community who said, "Wow, we are actually moving forward here in uh, in in Warner Robins." Natalie Mendenhall mentions that uh, Cosby Johnson won in Brunswick, and I want to ask uh, you about that in a minute, Bobby. Khalid uh, Kamau won in South Fulton. South Fulton and Brunswick are majority African-American communities. Nevertheless, it isn't as if we're not electing African-Americans to significant positions across the state, Patricia. Uh, the LaRonda Patrick race is fascinating because the sitting uh, incumbent mayor of Warner Robins held a press conference a couple of weeks before that election and announced that uh, the IRS had notified the city that they owed the IRS about $800,000. And that really upended that race. And LaRonda Patrick, um, you know, we were talking about simply having a challenger in some of these races for Democrats can be a victory in itself. But in this case, and this is not a, a Democratic or Republican race, it's nonpartisan, but by having an alternative there in Warner Robins, um, in LaRonda Patrick, who is an attorney who had an entire um, sort of uh, slate of plans for the city, uh, she was there uh, to really take advantage of that and uh, was elected in that race. And so she's one that we are certainly watching carefully. Um, and uh, in South Fulton, uh, why I think that's a, such a great city to be watching. It's not, not just that it's a new city. It's one of the newly created cities um, in Fulton County. It's the fifth largest city in Georgia, which just because it's so mm -hmm. close to Atlanta, I think people don't think of it as being its own city, but it's very, very large. And it's also um, has the highest percentage of African-Americans of any large city in America, 91%. And so um, the new mayor there, um, Kali Kamau, uh, ran on uh, a slogan that says black on purpose. And his position was that uh, although the city itself is um, predominantly black, the policies and um, politics there don't reflect that. And so he immediately um, signed proclamations to declare racism and inequality, public health crises. Um, he is uh, a, a declared democratic socialist, which is something new for, uh, I think, for Georgians to see um, in a mayor's race. And he, it's, not, he, it's not just that he is a democratic socialist. He plans to govern as a democratic socialist. And so that will be a fascinating uh, mayor's office to watch over these next several years because he's talking about making major changes and making South Fulton look like kind of a Greenwood community in Georgia. Um, Bobby Cosby Johnson ran on a platform down there in Brunswick that sounded a lot like what you're talking about at a better Glen, bringing the community together, a new era in our community down here. Um, is he a hopeful sign for Brunswick? So, before Cosby ran for mayor, Cosby was on the ground uh, registering people to vote. Uh, Cosby was knocking on doors trying to get people out to vote. Uh, he was partnering with our organization uh, when uh, COVID struck and children returned back to school. Schools ran, uh, our elementary schools quickly ran out of bottled water 
So he partnered with our organization in order to uh, get bottled water distributed to every elementary school here in Glen County. Um, Cosby believes in this community because he's from this community. Uh, and he has, he's much like myself and other uh, members of ABG where we left and we came back because we, we love our community. Uh, it's not about anything but making things uh, improved for the citizens here. Uh, we are hopeful for Cosby uh, uh, in that he is a, a son of, of Glen County and you want to see all of your sons and daughters of your community succeed. Uh, and what better place for them to succeed than right here in their hometown? Uh, uh, Tiffany, um, if we elect more minority public officials, uh, Patricia talks about especially at the local level, uh, it becomes a, a crucial. I mean, we already know uh, that electing uh, uh, minorities uh, to, other, to, to Congress, uh, to the legislature matters. But these local elections uh, suggest, do they suggest to you that we're moving in a fairly positive direction in some ways? I think that what's important is when we're looking at this, these uh, new, these uh, neophyte uh, elected <clears throat> officials, um, yes, they are black, but they also have been backed by progressive black-led organizations, right? So that looks like Working Families Party, Black Voters Matter, New Georgia Project Action Fund. It's not merely um, that they're black. It is that their politics lends itself, uh, itself to um, the liberation of all people, right, which by default means the liberation of black people. Um, I should disclose I'm on Khalid's um, transition team in my individual capacity. We organized together and helped to found the first Black Lives Matter chapter in Atlanta or the Black Lives Matter Atlanta chapter. And so I think it's significant um, that people with or grassroots organizing experience community involvement beyond asking for votes are the ones being supported by these progressive organizations and are being elected as part of a broader promise um, that they will enact policies that reduce the harms of the systems ex um, exact on our communities. And so I think representation is important, but it's the representation of ideology um, that I think we're most concerned with. When I was in Glen County, I had an opportunity to meet Coffee for the first time um, but what, what was most important to me was like, well, how do people like Bobby feel about this leadership and what opportunities have they identified in these folks um, where organizations like Southern Center or coalitions like Just Georgia can be helpful? Because we're minor players in that. We're there to be supportive, um, but we have to be sure that, that people are not causing harm by being elected or exploiting the fact that they can be elected because of the racial demographic of the city. Okay, got to get to our final break of the show. Back with more in just a minute. Margaret Coker, um, we got word from the White House a couple days ago that uh, President Biden and I think Vice President Harris are both going to be in Georgia in Atlanta next Tuesday to promote federal uh, 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 voting rights uh, bills that are stalled in the Senate. They've already passed through the House, uh, Bobby has already talked about uh, the issues around the voting laws, the uh, election laws that Georgia passed that, that many people feel are, are going to suppress or are an attempt to suppress uh, minority votes. But what, one of the things that's interesting uh, about this, Margaret, is that you have uh, African-American activists now saying that Biden shouldn't even bother to come until and unless he has some some action plan to get these measures through the Senate. So there's great frustration about whether or not the president is doing enough to get election law, a federal election law to counter some of these uh, uh, restrictive state laws. Yeah, one of the um, beautiful and unique things about the American Republic is that we do have federal law and we do have state law. And in sometimes um, it takes the federal law in order to bring our more perfect union into um, 
into a place of progress. That's what happened when um, when Voting Rights Act laws were, were passed the first time in, in the 1960s. It's when Civil Rights Acts were, were passed in the 1950s. And so here we are at another fulcrum today. And yes, of course, um, uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, I think, are sincere about their belief that they want to try to um, to make a federal umbrella that will help voters of every community in America feel safer and have more um, agency when it comes to to safely and effectively voting. But um, it's a real risk coming to Georgia next week because unless there is a pathway forward to passing this federal legislation, Biden um, is has got his reputation on the line. And when you're coming into an incredibly important election year and the Democratic ticket in Georgia is is going to is is so wrapped up into voting rights as an issue, whether it's Stacey Abrams or or Senator Warnock, who has stumped on this since getting elected in 2020. You know, it is it's a huge risk. So the maybe maybe just like um, um, just like all great deadlines, maybe there will be a breakthrough in in Congress about how to get voting rights passed because of the pressure that Biden will face next week in Georgia. Well, I think that. Uh... Uh, President Biden is coming to Georgia because they've spent the last year trying to get what uh, the activists want, which is a Democratic proof majority for these voting rights bills. And they have made almost no progress on that. And so the uh, White House, I think, understands the need to start building the case and putting more pressure externally on these senators to start to be more open minded to passing a federal um, a federal bill um, that may include Democrats trimming some of those bills that are there right now. Um, right now, the federal voting rights bills um, in some versions contain uh, statehood for uh, the District of Columbia, um, the sort of an entire government reform package rather than a more narrow, tailored voting rights bill. And so um, I think they need to change the dynamic to start to get some progress here because the reality is that the Democrats do not have the votes for this legislation, and they also have a huge amount of anxiety that this may be their last bite at the apple to address voting rights before the next election uh, when Democrats are projected um, to, to potentially lose uh, their control of the House. And so this is they're really facing a, a really tough spot where they need to create momentum um, and they need to get some changes happening really quickly uh, because November of 22 is coming is coming around the corner. Bobby, are, are, are you frustrated that the White House has not done more? Are you one of the people who worries that there ought to be a, 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 a harder push by Biden? I've, I've focused less attention on the White House and more attention on uh, the opposition in the Senate. And uh, that opposition comes from uh, those who are funded by corporate America who have uh, no no want whatsoever in order to change the demographic because it's going to negatively impact uh, the pockets of uh, corporate executives um, across the country. So uh, while I understand that uh, Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Harris have uh, a lot of sway, uh, there's no sway like, like the dollars that are flowing into Washington. Uh, I've been a proponent of statehood for Washington, D.C. I've been a proponent for statehood for Puerto Rico. Uh, and and uh, those are initiatives that uh, would definitely benefit uh, one side of the aisle over the other. But if, if uh, corporate America has any say uh, in the advancement of racial capitalism in the country uh, is uh, as prevalent as we understand it to be, uh, those things won't happen until we uh, solidify uh, the voting rights for the people who have been systematically disenfranchised historically. Um, Tiffany, uh, before we end today's show, I want to do a little history lesson, if you don't mind. It's got a current event uh, peg, fortunately, but it tells us how long the fight for uh, racial justice has gone on in this country. Just this week, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards took a recommendation from his Pardons and Paroles Board and granted a posthumous pardon to Homer Plessy. Homer Plessy was at the center of one of the most um, uh, uh, 
of a landmark Supreme Court ruling in 1894, Plessy versus Ferguson. Homer Plessy, who was seven-eighths white and one-eighth African-American and was chosen because of that racial mixture by the people who wanted the law for separate uh, cars on in-state railroads in Louisiana. He got on a white car. He was asked to get off. He was arrested, went to trial for this. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was there that the Supreme Court ruled, uh, notwithstanding the 13th or 14th Amendments to the Constitution, that separate but equal was, in fact, uh, the law of the land and constitutionally acceptable. And that didn't change until 1954 in Brown v. Board of Education. Tiffany? Right. So in 1954, my mom was nine years old growing up in a small town called Camden, Arkansas. And uh, I guess my dad was about 20. And and when I think about that, so those are people in my lifetime who have witnessed things like parents having to step off of a sidewalk if they came across a white person. And I, I teach a class at Georgia State where I teach criminal legal reform through the lens of Ida B. Wells, who was also uh, arrested uh, for refusing to leave a white because she wanted to sit in the ladies' car and not the car where everyone was cursing and smoking. Um, and so we kind of, we see those kinds of incidents and sometimes believe that they happened so long ago that we can't possibly understand where the bad actors were coming from. But we experience that on a daily basis. And when we go, if we circle back to Ahmaud Aubrey, right, and we know that if you're suspected of committing a crime, you are entitled to a jury of your peers, right, and due process. And But there has always been an ethic in, in America that says that certain people are not entitled to due process, and, and that presumption can be really deadly. And so I'm hoping that um, we still, in Southern, at Southern Center, we seek to end the criminalization of race and poverty because we know that they're still separate but equal. Um, I want to close the show with the uh, a dissent that Justice John Marshall Hardin gave in that Plessy versus Ferguson case. And just quote a couple of things he said, because they're so relevant still to this day. He said, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or his color when his civil rights as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. That was Justice John Marshall Harlan back in 1894. It is still, still a goal that I think people are fighting for in this country today. Um, I'm really delighted that you were all with us for this panel uh, uh, today. Thank you so much, Bobby Henderson, Margaret Coker, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, and Patricia Murphy for a wonderful conversation as we end the week here on Political Rewind. Um, we'll be back, of course, on Monday when Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistaz, Jesse Neiswanger will uh, work with me to bring you the best show we possibly can. Um, until then, please take care. Stay healthy. Um, it's got to wear the mask. Omicron is really getting to people out there. And if you don't have a booster, please go think about getting it this weekend. See you all next week.